Father, we, we stop and prepare to look at your word because apart from the grace that you give us through Jesus Christ and sending your son, your word is the greatest treasure that we have. We couldn't know about that grace apart from your word. It is a precious, precious privilege for us to be able to open your word, to have it, to read it, to understand it, to respond to it, to engage with it. It's the greatest strength that we have in our lives that you have given us your word. And it's a precious thing to come and to read it, to pray for understanding from the Spirit so that we can see what's in your word. And then, Lord, to live by it, to keep in step with the Spirit through obedience to your word. And so I pray, Father, that this morning as we look at this passage, we would be eager to hear from you, ready to respond to you, ready to be challenged, ready to be convicted, ready to change, to put off the old man and to put on Christ as we see new ways in which we should, or maybe we see old ways and we have wandered away from. All in your grace, your grace through Jesus Christ, so that we can know that as we battle against sin, as we battle to put off the old man and put on the new man, as there's a spiritual war that's being waged within our souls, as you say, we also know that as you say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free because of what he has done. And we know it through your word. And I pray we would see it again this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. So John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. There are several Passover feasts that are mentioned in the book of John. So before we even read this, I, I want to point out that there's a story told in the other Gospels of Jesus clearing out the temple. And, and that happens actually at the end of Jesus' ministry. It happens in the week leading up to his crucifixion. And so some people have suggested that the story we're about to read this morning is the same story that's in the other Gospels, but John has chosen to tell it at the beginning of his book. And I, I just want to say right from the outset, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, that. I don't think that's correct. John gives absolutely no clue here that he's telling the story out of order and suddenly fast-forwarding to the last week of Jesus' life and then popping back. There's no literary clues to tell us he's doing that. In fact, just the opposite. The first five chapters of the book of John are full of stories that don't show up in the other Gospels. So it wouldn't make sense that he would put one story here that is also in the other Gospels and he would also put it completely out of order. And there's a difference about this story as well. We're going to see in a minute. So we ought to take this story as happening early in Jesus' ministry at a Passover in Jerusalem a few years before he goes to Jerusalem to be crucified. And we shouldn't be surprised by that either. Jesus was a troublemaker in the Jewish leadership's eyes, so it shouldn't really surprise us that he's causing them trouble now, and he'll do it again later. So, I just want to get that out of the way. This is not the same story that's told in the other Gospels. 
although it's very similar and should tell us something about Jesus' attitude through his whole ministry towards the temple and what was happening in the temple. But now that that's out of the way, it, it hardly needs to be said the Passover was a big deal, right? I mean, it was the biggest deal, probably the biggest deal in the whole Jewish calendar. Celebrating their exodus from Egypt, the night that God's angel came and he killed all the firstborn in Egypt, except those that had the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorframe. The Passover happened every year. And all the Jews who could would come to Jerusalem to feast together, to make sacrifices, to worship the Lord. Just think about the, the practicality of that. Just think about what, what that must have looked like. Uh, this, this was probably also a time for a lot of people to see old friends and family, to meet new ones. It was the highlight of many people's years. So, you know, Sarah and I, for, for years before we came here, we would, every couple of years, we'd go to the same, the same convention. And it was the same convention that, that we had been going to for, for years while we were in seminary. And, and so we loved going, we loved listening and preaching. But part of the deal for us was when we went, it was the people that we hadn't seen for the last year that we were like, oh, we know we're going to run into them. We're going to catch up with them. We need to make sure we get dinner with so-and-so. We need to make sure that we, we find some time to hang out with these people. And so you can imagine, I mean, these are humans we're talking about. The, the Passover was the time for everybody to get together. And, and you probably saw family that you hadn't seen or, you, or friends that you hadn't seen. You thought maybe you'll, you'll meet new ones. So it's, it's a big deal. So just imagine here for a minute that you were going to the Passover. And imagine that you live days or weeks away from Jerusalem. And, and so you have to travel there for the Passover. You've got your family. You know that along the way you're going to be meeting up with, with maybe other family members that are going to join your group or, or friends. Maybe you guys always travel together to the Passover. Maybe it's a yearly thing that y'all do. And, and so there's, there's the logistics of traveling, right, and, and getting all your people, all your stuff. You've got to plan, you know, how you're going to feed yourselves, all of this. And so you also know that, w- that when you get there, you're going to have to make sacrifices, you're going to have to make sacrifices for the Passover. And so the logistics of it all just makes it almost impossible for you to imagine trying to bring all the animals and everything that you're going to need for that. Thankfully, you don't have to. Thankfully, you don't have to. You can just bring money. You can just pack some money, and when you get there, you can purchase what you need right there. They'll have it ready for you. It's, it's super convenient. You also know that the kind of money that you're going to need when you get to the temple is you're going to need the Tyrian silver coinage. You're going to need the staters and the detradrachon, or however you pronounce that. But that's not what you use back in your hometown, and nobody in your hometown happens to have a cache of Tyrian silver coinage, but you don't need to worry about that either. Because when you get there, you'll be able to trade your money for the kind of money you actually need to be able to use in the temple. Super convenient. It's really helpful for you. So you pack up. You head on your way. You're stopping at friends and family. They're joining your your group. You're having a great time. You show up at Jerusalem. Jerusalem's booming. Everywhere there's markets. People are camping here and there. Houses are full. And there's the temple. You're coming in and and you're excited because there's a, a lot to see. In fact, you're interested to see if there's anything new 
from last year, because you know that Herod the Great, I mean, forever ago, before you were even born, Herod the Great started renovating the temple. And for the last 40 plus years, they have been renovating the temple. So you're kind of interested to see, are there new things? Did they, did they renovate this courtyard? I mean, what's changed since last year? Maybe you come from around the region of Galilee. So maybe on, the, on your travels in, you guys, as, as you've been sitting around at night, you've been talking about the things that have been happening. Maybe you guys shared your opinions on John the Baptist. Maybe you guys shared your opinions on, have you heard about this new guy, Jesus? He's been making, uh, making some waves. Surely he's going to be here. I mean, it's the Jewish Passover in Jerusalem. Surely he's going to show up. Maybe we'll get to see him. Maybe we'll even get to hear him. I hear he's got disciples now. Be interested to see what that looks like. Maybe when you go to the temple in the morning to buy your doves, maybe he'll be there. So when we heard John the Baptist a few weeks back say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about the Passover lamb. The lambs that were killed so that God would pass over those people and he would not bring his judgment on them. So here we're coming to Jerusalem and at the same time, Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb, is coming to a Passover feast a few years before he spills his own blood so that God's judgment would pass over his people. What a picture this is, right? Let's read and let's see what happens when the Passover lamb comes to the Passover. Beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right. I want to break this down into two parts for us. First, I just want to look at the lamb coming to the Passover. The lamb coming to the Passover. And then I want us to see what Jesus says about how the temple is going to fundamentally change. But first, the lamb comes to the Passover. Here's what I want you to notice in this story. So in the outer courts, probably where the Gentiles would have been allowed to come and worship Yahweh, a marketplace had arisen over the years. It was driven by convenience, but its purpose was to support the sacrificial system of the temple. I, I want you to note, though, that Jesus doesn't condemn these people in this story of greed or corruption. 
So years later, he's going to drive out people from the temple again, and he's going to say things like, you den of robbers. But I want you to notice that that's not what he does here. I'm sure that greed and corruption were there because greed and corruption are everywhere that money and people come together. So I'm sure it was there, but that's not his accusation here. And, and why is that important? Why is it important to note that his, his accusation here is not the greed and corruption? Because this gets at what the Lamb of God is most concerned about, the purpose of the temple itself. These people, what I'm saying is these people could have been entirely pure of heart. They could have been entirely sincere in helping their fellow Jews get the sacrificial animals that they need. This is a great service, right? This is a great service for the people who don't necessarily have animals. So they could have been entirely sincere in what they were doing, and the point is they still would have been completely wrong. Jesus comes, and just let's just think about the details here for a minute. So there's the crowded temple. There's people everywhere. They all just let Jesus do this, Right? Now, I think in the way that you read this, so he makes the, 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 the whip of cords, that's to drive out the livestock. You know, that probably took at least a minute or two to drive out all the livestock, right? Then when he's done driving out all the livestock, then he's overturning the, the, the tables. Then, because I imagine all, of the, all the birds are probably all in cages, this is why he doesn't drive the birds out. This is why he tells the people who are selling them, take them out. It's kind of this idea of pick up these cages, get them out of here. He can drive out the animals, but you guys move out your, your, your boxes and cages here of birds. That's going to take some time. What's interesting to me is that they don't get the authorities involved. They, 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 just, they all just watch him do this. And I read that and I think, what kind of presence must Jesus have had? Have you guys met people like that? I mean, I, you know, you've met people who are just so charismatic that they can, they can just take over a room. They just, by the very force of their presence, can make everybody just stand back and think, no, it's right to just let them do whatever they're doing. Here's the Son of God, the Passover Lamb. And I'm thinking, my goodness, why are they not calling the guards? Why, why, are, why are they not going, whoa, hold up? What kind of presence must Jesus have had? to be able to take all the time to do this. And then listen to what he says to those who sold the pigeons. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now again, that's a morally neutral statement. That's not the same as a den of robbers. This is, don't, don't make my father's house a place where, where we trade. Don't make my father's house into the marketplace. This gets to the, the heart of his concern, though. This temple is his father's house. What was it intended for? It wasn't intended as a place to buy animals. It wasn't intended as a place to change your money. It wasn't intended as a place where you go and you get in line and you wait until you can go and negotiate for, for, for buying what you need to buy. For the sake of convenience, the whole purpose of this part of the temple had been changed. This puts the reader on notice. 
The concern here is about right worship, about pure worship. The concern here is about giving all honor and glory to the Father that is due Him. So there are Greeks, there are non-Jewish God-fearers who come to the Passover feast as well, aren't there? Because of the temple rules, they're not allowed beyond this area. This is where they are to come and to worship the Father. We actually meet some of those in chapter 12, verse 20, at that final Passover that Jesus goes to. And those Greeks, they come and they want to meet Jesus. But the part of the temple that's built for their worship is now basically a market. It's full of animals for sale. It's full of people negotiating money. I mean, it's great, right? It's great for the Jews who came. It's great for you and me. We traveled so far. We've got to buy our animals. We've got to make sure we have the right kind of money. But there's two things that are wrong with this. One, for the non-Jewish followers of Yahweh, their place of worship is a circus. Their place of worship is not set aside for them to worship the Lord their God. Which that leads to the second thing that's wrong with this. The worship of the Lord their God. His worship. The worship that He demands. The worship that He jealously guards. They've corrupted. They've twisted. It's being disregarded. So Jesus comes then, and Jesus does here what God has always done throughout the whole Old Testament. He has reminded the Jews that worship of God demands reverence. It demands obedience, and it demands fear. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David is having the Ark of the Covenant moved, the oxen, they stumble at one point. And a man named Uzzah, he reaches out to steady the ark so that it doesn't fall. And God struck Uzzah dead for doing that. And David was angry. But then David, he was afraid. And we read that he asked, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? God's holiness is so great. He will not, he will not allow uncleanness to come into his presence. And so a sinful man touched God's ark and he was put to death. Now in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, there was a man named Uzziah. So we have Uzzah and we have Uzziah. Uzziah was a king. And and, and here's the thing, Uzziah was a genuinely great king. King. He ruled for about a half a century, and he was a genuinely great king, a godly king. He was a king who grew strong. But in 2 Chronicles 26, Uzziah had become prideful. And in his pride, he tried to go into the temple to burn incense as the king of God's people. He tried to go into the temple to burn incense. And do you know what happened to him? God struck him with leprosy, and he died a leper. When God's people stray, when we stray, inevitably, there will be a distortion of the right worship of God. Whether it's in the name of convenience, whether it's for some other reason, 
But no true child of God should be content with that. That's why the disciples suddenly remember this reference from Psalm 69 as they see the Son of God clearing the temple, saying that you have turned my Father's house, which should be a house of worship. It should be a house of repentance, of humility, of praise. You've turned it into a marketplace. And they remember this reference from Psalm 69. Zeal for his house shall consume me. And Jesus is so much like David in Psalm 69. We read it earlier. Maybe I should actually say David in Psalm 69 is so much like Jesus, right? David says, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Why? Because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Word, who has come to His own. And what did John say? He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. His own rejected Him. And He comes to His Father's house, and He sees what they've done to His Father's house of worship in the name of convenience, in the name of of money. And zeal for his father's house consumes him. He is going to bear the reproach of those who reproach God. Here's something for us to note, though. He's going to bear the reproach of those who reproach God. Those who reproach God would have fundamentally disagreed with that statement. They would have said, what are you talking about? We don't reproach God. We worship God. We're we're the leaders of worshiping God in this nation. And yet, they're the ones who reproach the Son. This is a moment for us to make sure that we stay humble, right? We stay humble. We stay focused on Christ. We stay focused on His authority. The right worship of God was lost. This place should have been filled with humility. So when I think about applying Scripture, uh, doing this Bible study class, I I walked through how you can think about applying Scripture. And, and, And I've got five categories that I always think about. And the first two are application that encourages. So I always ask the question, is there application from this text that encourages weak believers? Is there application from this text that would encourage somebody who's burdened, somebody who's struggling, that they would need to hear? And then the second category is just the the other side of that, right? Application of conviction. Are there things in this passage that ought to convict, that, that, that should convict the Christian who may be stumbling, the Christian who may be straying. And here there's an obvious application for conviction, isn't there? Do we lose the right worship of God? Do we lose that giving Him the honor that's due His name for the sake of convenience? Do you lose the right worship of God for the sake of convenience? Do you allow things to encroach in the sacred areas of worshiping the Lord because it's just honestly convenient to do? 
I mean, we could think of a lot of areas there, right? We could think of just our own personal lives, our, 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 our prayer, or our Bible study. We can obviously think about our engagement with the fellowship of God, with His bride, with the, the body. Do we, are, are, are we guilty of the same thing that's happening here at the Passover feast, that in the name of convenience, we have actually distorted, we've actually perverted, we've actually disregarded the right worship of God, the way He intends to be worshipped? That's a good question for us to wrestle with. That's a good question for you to think about. That's a good question for us as a church to be aware of in our own congregation. We're here. We're here to worship God. The thing that unites all of us is Jesus Christ. Convenience. Convenience is a dangerous thing. And so Jesus comes and he clears, he clears the temple. And I want us to be really careful about judging, judging the Jews who are meeting for the Passover here. What I want us to see is how easily you and I could be in that same situation. How easily you and I could have been sincere Jews coming to the Passover, thankful, thankful for the opportunity that we're going to have to be able to purchase what we need there. We could have been sincere Jews, joyful about that, never giving a thought to what's being lost because of this marketplace here. I, I want you to realize that's, that would be so easy for us to do. And Jesus comes and He gives this powerful correction. And perhaps Jesus needs to give you and I a powerful correction. Because left to ourselves, we will go astray from right worship. Left to ourselves. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, said, How can we love a holy God? How can we love a holy God? The simplest answer I can give to this vital question is that we can't. Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our own hands. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds His holy love in our hearts, unless He stoops in His grace to change our hearts, we will not love Him. We could very easily see the pragmatic application of it's just I mean, I understand that you know we're we're impeding on the, the worship that that you know these Greek and, and Gentile worshipers have, but just think of all the good we're doing for everybody. And you know, we, we could we could we could come to those sort of understandings and be like and, and, and then say, and I think God would understand that too. I mean I think God would understand that what what we're trying to do here. But I think what we need to see here is that God is a perfectly holy God who can only be worshipped as He has said He will be worshipped. He sets the stage. He, he gives us the directions. And so, the first part of the story was the Lamb. The Lamb comes and clears the temple. Jesus gives us the picture here, though, 
now of how God is going to make his dwelling place a place that you and I can come into. How is God going to make his dwelling place a place where you and I, sinful as we are, can come into his presence, his perfect, holy presence? How how is he going to ultimately purify his temple? So our first point this morning was the lamb came to the Passover. Our second point this morning is there is a new temple coming. There is a new temple coming. So the Jews ask, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I want you to keep in mind who the Jews are in John's gospel. This is not every Jew, obviously, because Jesus is a Jew. His disciples are Jews. No, when when he says the Jews here, he's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, the ones ultimately who are going to bring Jesus to trial. These are the same Jews that we saw at the beginning of the story. And here's what they're asking. They're asking him, can you give us a sign to show that you have the authority to do what you just did? So again, it's, just, it's interesting, isn't it? It speaks to, to, to the power of Jesus that they all just watched him do this. It speaks to the power of Jesus that, that they now come to him and they say, okay, you did that. Can you give us a sign to show the authority that you had to do that? It's kind of funny when you think about it. After all, the, these Jewish leaders are the ones that have the authority over the temple. The, these Jewish leaders are the ones that have the authority over what's going on in the temple. So, so Jesus comes along in this action. It's a challenge to them. I want you to follow along the dialogue carefully here because Jesus doesn't give the answer they expect. And, and frankly, he doesn't give an answer that makes any sense at this point. So they ask him for a sign to show that he's got the authority to make this decision about clearing the temple. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So that's the sign that he says. He says, you want a sign, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And then you'll see that I had the authority to come in here and to clear out all of these animals and to turn over these tables and to purify what's happening in the temple. So up till now, if we've been reading the story, when we've talked about the temple, we've been talking about the actual building, the actual courtyards, the actual space where actual real physical animals were being sold and actual real physical money was changing hands. So because of that, we, we should probably forgive the Jews because they totally misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. And again, we probably would have totally misunderstood. I mean, his disciples totally misunderstood what he was saying here. Nobody got what he was saying when he said this. Because in the flow of thought, if you've been in a temple, and you've been talking about a temple, and somebody says, destroy this temple, I mean, come on. What else are you going to think he's talking about other than the temple? 
It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You raise it up in three days? They're probably looking around. They're looking at all the courtyards. They're, they're thinking of all the work that they've put into making this temple what it is. And they're thinking, what are you talking about? This guy is crazy. And so this is where John cuts in. John cuts in and he tells us what just happened. He says, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. At this moment, it doesn't make sense. In fact, at Jesus' trial, he'll be accused of threatening to destroy the temple here. But actually, he was doing something so much more radical than saying that the temple should be destroyed. He was doing something that was so much more audacious than just saying you could destroy this physical building and these courtyards. That would have been bad enough, right? Would have been bad enough if he had said you could knock all this stuff down and I'd rebuild it. But no, what he was doing was something so much more fundamentally audacious, just crazy, hard to wrap your head around, because what he was doing is he was intentionally switching the location of the temple. They didn't realize it then, but he was intentionally switching what the temple was. So this man has more than just the authority to come into the temple and drive out all of these animals. He is saying he has the authority to go, you know what? That is not the temple anymore. John says he was speaking of his body. The sign that he would give to show his authority to clear the temple was that he would die on a cross bearing the reproach of these very people. And then, because he had the authority to lay down his life and he had the authority to take his life up again, he would be raised in three days. The sign that he would give is the cross and the resurrection. And in doing so, he's telling them and he's telling us, John is telling you and I, the temple is now located at Jesus. He himself is the temple. That's just such a fundamentally different way of thinking uh, about this that nobody can understand it until after that world-changing event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But Jesus is saying the earthly temple is about to become obsolete. Right worship of God is essential. This is why he cleared the temple. But then he turns around to say this temple is about to become obsolete. The temple is going to be found in Jesus. Jesus is saying that the dwelling place of the Most High God, where humans will meet Him and humans will worship Him, is about to move to be centered on Jesus alone. 
Do we want to come into the presence of the Most High? Do we want to worship Him? Do we want to see His glory? That will only come through Jesus. The building will pass away. Jesus is going to tell somebody very soon, not, not, not much longer from now, we're going to be looking at a conversation where Jesus says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus will say, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. So again, not only is Jesus claiming the authority to clear the temple, he claims that he's going to completely change the location of the worship of God, of the dwelling of God where he is to be worshipped. It will be in Jesus. Do you want to worship God? You must be in Jesus. Do you want to come into his presence? You must be in Jesus. He must be your everything. His life must be yours. And hey, on that note, on that note, let's just stop and think here just a minute about the imagery of the Passover lamb coming into the earthly temple and literally driving out all the other sacrificial animals. Did did you catch the... Maybe there's some symbolism there. John loves this kind of thing. The Passover lamb comes into the temple and he drives out all the other sacrifices. Maybe, maybe because those animals aren't going to be necessary at the temple anymore. Because there is one sacrifice that's going to be made that will truly purify all of God's people. There's one lamb who's going to be slaughtered who will actually accomplish what all of those oxen and all of those sheep and all of those birds could never accomplish. He is going to sacrifice himself. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything is about to fundamentally change here. Jesus is what matters. Being made pure, being made holy despite our sin, it's going to come through the Lamb of God. Coming into the presence of God, worshiping Him, dwelling Him, that our access comes through Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. Oh my goodness, the Jews talk about authority to Jesus. He's claiming so much more authority here than they could possibly understand. But you and I, we have to understand it. We have to see what Jesus is claiming here. Do you want to be right with God? It's through Jesus. Do you want to worship God? It comes through Jesus. Can you? Of course you can. This is why Jesus came. He came to make it possible for you and I to worship God in spirit and in truth. He came so that you and I, wretched sinners, rebels against God, we could come into the most holy of holies. We're about to witness the baptism of a new child of God. We're about to witness the baptism of a young lady who now dwells in the presence of the Most High God. Has a purity and a holiness that she could never have gotten any other way 
than by coming to Jesus. And you think about this imagery of baptism. Sophie's going to go under the water, symbolizing that her sinful self had to die. There, There had to be a punishment. There had to be a judgment. There had to be a sacrifice made. Her sin was punished. Her sin was judged when the temple was destroyed. In other words, when Jesus' body was hung on the cross and the wrath of God was poured out against Him. When there was this terrible separation between the Father and the Son as the wrath of the Father poured out on Him for Sophie. But the temple did not stay destroyed. And sin didn't win. And the temple rose again And now Sophie and every single one of us who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have access to the holy of holies within that temple because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so when she comes out of the water, it's this picture of the temple, the new temple, the new dwelling place of God is Jesus. A life where we are given perfect righteousness, where we are made pure. We can, we can come freely into the presence of the God who struck us a dead. We can come freely into the presence of the God who gave Uzziah leprosy. You and I, if we're in Jesus, we can come into the presence of God. We can call God our Father. Paul tells the Colossians, he says, when Christ who is your life, appears. When Christ who is your life, this is the picture in baptism. Our old man died when the temple was destroyed. And when the temple was raised again, when Jesus came back, we were raised in a new life. Christian, that's us. We have to see what Jesus is saying here. He's claiming the authority to save your soul. He's claiming the authority and the ability to bring you into the presence of God. When he says that the temple is him, we see that his plan is to bring his people into God's presence. That's what you have in Christ. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful and precious picture Lord, we ought to be convicted at how casual we can be about the reality that you have made a way for us to come into your presence. We can be so casual even about praying and just the precious gift, Lord, of of speaking to you and not being worried that you will strike us dead for presuming upon your holiness. Because even though we still sin, we have been given the perfect righteousness of your Son. We have been given access to the temple. Lord, we praise you for that. We don't deserve it. 
I pray that we would remember each and every second of every day this week that we live within your temple. You dwell within us because Christ dwells within us. What an unbelievable gift you've given us, Lord. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.